In October of 1969, a group of monster hunters, mostly British with one American and one Monaghan man, travelled to the bogs of Connemara in the west of Ireland to search for lake monsters. They were not interested in water horses, water bulls, the Doraku, or any other sort of supernatural fairy creature associated with Irish bodies of water. No, these were scientists, men and one woman, of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, and they believed that these lake beasts were flesh and blood animals. Perhaps there was some difference of opinion as to what kind of animals. Some may have favoured the traditional plesiosaur, as is frequently associated with Loch Ness. At least one of them believed the animals to be a living descendant of some kind of ancient slug-like invertebrate. But one of these researchers had his suspicions that they were not, in fact, dealing with physical creatures. He was, in fact, well on his way to believing that lake monsters were something far more mystical, spiritual and ethereal. This episode explores his 1960s monster hunting adventures here in Ireland and where it ultimately led him. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and from here at the cabin in the woods, somewhere in Wild West Cork, I bring you a detailed look at the strange story of unusual beliefs in this country. If you're a Loch Ness fan, you may be surprised to find out that similar stories have in fact played out on the Atlantic fringes of our own small island. I certainly was. Joining me for this episode is a delightful, refreshing craft lager, Dutch Gold. Made with the finest malt barley, hops and pure water, this golden brew is best served at field temperature and is delicately brewed for the most discerning of palates. Make sure you have a beverage handy and get ready for a tale of the wet, muddy west, Irish Lake Monsters, the 1969 Connemara Expedition. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us once again at the Cabin in the Woods it's another windy, stormy day. You might hear some sound in the background. Don't worry, it's just the branches of the trees beating against my windows. Nothing to be concerned about. Anyway, we have some housekeeping, some shout-outs, some stuff like that to, to uh, talk about before we get into our main topic today. Firstly, we have a message in from Mr. Andrew M. Uh, talking about Dawn of the Wild. That was our recent Bigfoot-themed audio drama. If you haven't checked that one out, please do. Andrew says, The Dawn of the Wild is outstanding. That's a serious accomplishment. I can't imagine how difficult it must have been. That lovely British lady, I could listen to her talking all day. Well, that is uh, Joe Hart, of course, who was doing, well, a lot of the heavy lifting on that episode, just had probably the most dialogue out of everybody. She did a fantastic job on the narration. Yeah, if you haven't checked it out, it's a, a drama. It's like a, you know, like old, old-fashioned radio dramas that you would have heard in the old days about the very first people chasing after Bigfoot in the 1950s when those first 1958 Bluff Creek footprints were found. So it's a, a thin fictionalization of, of that situation. So any kind comments about that one? I'm always glad to hear it was a tremendous amount of work, I must say. Now, I have a, a ghost story that was sent in to me by the fantastic Victoria Pearson. 
who was good enough to send me great stuff all the time. Thanks, thank you, Victoria. This one is about Cork City. So she says, and this is a family story as well, which I always love. So Victoria says, um, this story is about my grandmother, uh, and she used to tell it. Her paternal grandfather was a lamp lighter. I actually looked this up in the 1911 census because I'm a history nerd. His job was to walk a route in Cork City Centre, lighting gas lamps in the evening and outing them in the morning. As the light changes throughout the year, he was often out very early in the morning and very late in the evening. I don't know what his route was, but so it goes. He used to say that at this time, the turn of the 20th century, St. Peter and Paul's, that's a, a church in the middle of the city, used to be open in the early hours of the morning. Many night workers, or those out before dawn, would come into the chapel to pray. There was nothing else open, so if you needed shelter, warmth, or a place to sit and wait, it was a good spot. Also, popular devotion was strong, and people often had things they sought divine intervention for. Whatever the intention, the lamplighter used to say that, from time to time, the ghost of a priest would be seen on the altar. As the people were praying in the low, dim light, his whispered voice would echo, Is there anyone here to answer Mass? Most were afraid to answer, offering a prayer for the repose of his restless soul instead. Thanks, Victoria. That's a fantastic story. I absolutely love the intersection between kind of old-fashioned Catholic Ireland and ghost stories. The two very often went hand-in-hand in, hand in ways that um, I don't know the uh, church fathers would always have been in favour of, but I, I am fascinated by what I sometimes term folk religion. I know not everybody who studies these things is crazy about that term, but it kind of, I think people know what I mean when I say it. So uh, great stuff. Thank you very much for that one. If anyone does have their own spooky story, whether it's got to do with Ireland or anywhere else, I'd love to read it out. Uh, contact us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or over on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And we'd be, we would be delighted to read out whatever you've got for us. Oh, I have my own mini ghost story. I did spend the weekend just past at a supposedly haunted rectory somewhere in County Kerry, so far west of my usual digs. And my folks, it was a beautiful building um, on its own, um, isolated spot, a little bit away from the village, surrounded by trees and fields and a small river, a, a, an 1885 building with a great ghost story attached to it which I will have to wait for another day, unfortunately. The reason it's going to wait for another day is that I'm going to be doing an episode about Borley Rectory, which is, of course, whenever anyone hears the words haunted and rectory, that's where your mind naturally goes, the most haunted house in England. I've actually been to the site where it was. It, of course, burned down in 1939, I believe. But uh, there's, there's elements from the story that are still there. You have to be a little bit careful. The people of Borley Village over in, in I think it's Suffolk and the Suffolk border, they, you know, they've had a lot of visitors who are a bit careless and people who come because of the notoriety of the of the haunted house and the locals aren't exactly always thrilled. So if you are going, you know, have a little care. People do live there. But um, I have a few books ordered to talk about and uh, I'll tell the full story of the haunted Kerry rectory on that episode. But just a little something to uh, keep you all in suspense. And seeding us into the world of cryptozoology, that is, of course, the world of hidden animals or mystery animals. There was a little something in the news this week. There is a type of elephant shrew, which is a small animal, not technically actually uh, literally a shrew, that had been thought to have been 
maybe not extinct, but certainly hadn't been seen officially by science for 40 or 50 years. This was sort of in the region of the East Horn of Africa, so Djibouti and Somalia and countries like that, probably places where there isn't a whole lot of um, science going on on the ground. But what I like about this story was that it, it had been presumed the animal was either extinct or just had not been seen for so long. And um, they found not only is it around, but it seems to be thriving. It's in fact everywhere. And my favorite element of the story is the sort of tip off that got um, the scientists on the trail of this animal was local stories about the animal. So this is in effect almost like the classic cryptozoology situation. And, um, you know, originally the idea was that if you would follow the folklore of local people in different places in the world and you investigated and you took them at their word that there might be a real flesh and blood creature behind it. You know, that's the story we always hear about the mountain gorilla and the okapi. And here we have a, you know, a small, less, uh, less charismatic example of it. But nonetheless, I think it's close enough to what cryptozoologists would consider a win. So I'll... I'll allow them to, ch to chalk that one up now. It's not as if there's any fantastic folklore associated with the animal itself. It's just a very small mammal. But it is cool to me that when the scientists showed up and said, you know, we haven't had a, an official reference of this thing for decades, and locals said, well, we see those all the time. And uh, it appears to be you know, common quite right across that part of the Horn of Africa. So, yeah, they, that's getting us into our main topic for today which is monsters and in fact is Irish lake monsters. Now here we go. So friend of the show Chris Crispy Joyce also known as Chris Spooky Joyce who showed up on one of our old uh, UFO episodes. We did an X-Files episode together. We reviewed some of our favorites from series one. If you feel like a bit of a 90s nostalgia hit go check that episode out. Chris also helped me out on a couple of uh, Alien Grey episodes. We did two parts that were called The Coming of the Greys. So go check those out if you're into Betty and Barney Hill stuff, abductions, all, all that good stuff. But um, uh, some time ago, Mr. Joyce sent me a video of some men hunting for lake monsters in Ireland in 1969. And it's astonishing. Straight away, I recognized a bunch of people, uh, great characters who are known to anybody who would be perhaps a, a Loch Ness buff. And yeah, a few familiar faces, a few, uh, a few interesting characters, scientists, and uh, various other kinds of investigators. And I, at the, at the time, I didn't know much about this, except I recognized one name, and that sent me down a rabbit hole of digging up my old books of the paranormal and the supernatural to see um, what I could find out exactly how this 1969 trip to Ireland for all of these uh, mostly British and some American monster hunters, how that really came about. So... What we see in this video is, <clears throat> it starts off with a man singing. It's, it's only three and a half minutes long, but it, it's from October 1969. It's a, an RTE program. RTE is, of course, the Irish state broadcaster, and it's from a show called News, Newsbeat, I believe. And it's hosted by a journalist by the name of Cahill O'Shannon. And in that three and a half minutes, we meet a fellow singing a folk song about monsters in Connemara Lakes, which... Uh, I, I would have to imagine he wrote himself. And it then turns out that this gentleman is none other than Ivor Newby, who, if you know your Loch Ness stuff, he's a an ex-RAF skin diver. He continued to have an interest in Loch Ness and lake monsters up until his death in his 80s, I believe in 2016. 
he's a big burly guy with a beard um he seems like a really a really nice friendly outgoing guy everybody who worked with him his whole career had good things to say about him and he seemed just genuinely fascinated by the stories of Loch Ness he did become a skeptic later in life but here in 1969 we find him at that really key point that really interesting time in the history of cryptozoology when it really seems like these things might be real these monsters might be real and perhaps science is just on the verge of catching them now there's two great ages of Loch Ness interest there's the original flurry of sightings in the 1930s and then there's a kind of a resurgence in the 1970s when uh, the media starts taking interest and, and people like Robert Rhines are doing their investigations and everybody you see in this video is kind of crucial in one way or another to that period so if you've seen the old In Search Of episodes with Leonard Nimoy. Those are all from that time. That's if you're aware of the story of the British naturalist uh, Sir Robert Scott, who's, who was, of course, the founder of the WWF, not, not the one with Vince McMahon, but the one with the pandas. Great, 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 important, well-known British naturalist um, and, and conservationist who utterly, really desperately wants the Loch Ness Monster to be real, so much so that he gives it a scientific name which is oh, off the top of my head, Nesseretus rhombopteryx, something like that. I, I'll check that one later. But it, this is a really, this is just before, like kind of the second resurgence of Loch Ness interest. And it's really interesting to see what all these guys are up to. And uh, sure enough, they were in Connemara. So we see them traipsing around in bogs, looking at, looking for lakes, but they're hardly lakes, folks. They're they're tiny little ponds. It's it's quite disappointing. <laughs> I'm sure some of them, and in fact, the my reading has has taught me that indeed, some of them came over after hearing stories of monsters and were a bit disappointed when they saw the the size of the lake. But we'll get to that. Who else shows up in this wonderful video? The main man seems to be Lionel Leslie, and he is the head of what he calls. Let me make sure I get this name right. The Loch Ness Phen Phenomena Investigation Bureau. Now, he's got a kind of a posh upper-class English accent, but I do have a letter from him decades later in the 80s when he's writing uh, to a friend or a colleague about his work with, with Robert Ryan's back at Loch Ness, and he, he states that he is a local, quote-unquote, um, with regards to his Irish adventures, because he, said he claims to be a, an expat man from Monaghan. So he, whether or not he sounds like it, he has some Irish connection, his last name, Leslie, of course. The Leslies were a great Anglo-Irish family. Makes me think of my very first ever episode of the Strange Ireland podcast, which was about Desmond Leslie, of course, who co-wrote uh, Flying Saucers Have Landed with uh, George Adamski, who was the, the, the father of the contactee movement in America in the 50s. But we don't have time to go there. That will have to be another episode. Or maybe I'll, maybe I'll dig up that old episode someday when I'm in a hurry. And I need, I need a quick episode. But... That is our boy Lionel Leslie. Um, yeah, and, and then we have a lady by the name of Holly Arnold, who uh, is, is apparently the secretary for this organization. She's an American and she has a fantastic, really lovely mid-Atlantic accent. The, the sort they just don't make anymore. You know, the kind that people had in old 1940s movies. Uh, it wasn't quite English and it wasn't quite American. I, re I really, really like it. She talks about having to deal with all of the correspondence from uh, monster sightings from around the world. And um, yeah, great, great, really interesting people here. And then we have, of course, Ivor Newby. Now, I found out in my reading that this is a much smaller research team than previous ones, because guess what? 
this didn't just happen in 1969. This happened. There, I mean, there were sightings in Galway slash Connemara lakes in 1954 there were sightings in 1965 and there were there were visits by some of these guys in 1965 again in 1968 now in 1969 and and even and even later on as well but i'm gonna just for the sake of making this whole thing manageable for this episode i'm gonna try and stick to the 1960s expeditions okay so there is one more guy in this in this group who i haven't mentioned yet and he this is what sent me down the rabbit hole. This is what convinced me there was a story worth telling here because all these other folks, Lionel Leslie and Holly Arnold and Ivor Newby, they sort of believe, from my understanding of their work, that these lake monsters are physical beings. Okay, this is where cryptozoology largely is at the time. And that the idea that we are chasing physical monsters, maybe we can actually catch them and measure them and you know dang it one day the those stuffy scientists at the british museum and will finally recognize uh, that we were correct all along that's sort of the take on it it's it's seen as fringe zoology rather than perhaps anything else except our boy ted holiday steps into the picture at this point ted in this wonderful video is wearing a sort of a fishing hat he's also sounds quite upper class English to me I could be mistaken he could be he could be upper middle anybody who um, has a good ear for mid 20th century British accents by all means call me out but I did I did live in uh, I did live in Surrey once so I, I like to think I do have some ear for for that sort of thing okay so who is Ted Holliday well I'm this 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 twigged me because he shows up in a bunch of books I read as a kid written by who else other than Colin Wilson. So if you listen to my show, I talk about Colin Wilson all the time. Who was he? He was an English writer, philosopher. He died in 2013. He seems he wrote a book called The Outsider in the 1950s as a very young man, which as, as a fellow coming from a sort of a work uh, self-consciously uh, self-describing working class background, he he attempted to break into the sort of intellectual elite mainstream just by pure sheer will and talent and he, did, he certainly did achieve that his book was um, seen as rather something of a marvel especially coming from such a strange fellow he was apparently living homeless by choice at the time in parks around london in order to i don't know keep his mind intellectually pure while he was writing the outsider anyway later on he sort of threw his career away in some people's eyes by a having a fixation on the occult and he wrote many 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 books about the occult in some quarters he's still well regarded but i would not say that he's well remembered by mainstream sort of paranormalists these days i don't find people always know who he is except for folks who are perhaps a bit older than me anyway why am i talking about him because he was very good friends with this fellow with the fishing hat, Mr. Ted Holliday, who was also a Loch Ness monster enthusiast, but a very, very strange one indeed. So I'm going to get the ball rolling on Ted Holliday, just to give you some some context for who this guy was who's wambling around in a in a Connemara bog. <laughs> you can see it's October; they're all suffering. There's rain. They're trying to they're trying to move bits of equipment around, and they're getting blown away, and they're they're being like they're falling into pools of stinking mud and everything it looks just as miserable as you'd imagine a Connemara bog in uh, in October might be so 
Who is this fellow Ted Holliday? Well, from one of Colin Wilson's books, World Famous UFOs. Yes, UFOs from... It's a, I'm guessing about 1990, but the publishing details don't make this very clear. So, weirdly, because this is the way Colin Wilson writes, in a book about UFOs, he has a chapter about the Loch Ness Monster. But that's even that's not good enough. He goes further and says, uh, this chapter is in fact called The Psychic Solution? Question mark. The Loch Ness Ghost? Question mark. Okay, here we go. In August 1962, a fishing journalist named Frederick William Holliday, known to his friends as Ted, drove in a light fan to the shores of Loch Ness. He had always been fascinated by the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster. That night, as he was sleeping in his tent, he was puzzled to hear the sound of waves crashing on the beach. The night was windless and totally silent, and there was no sound of a boat out on the loch. In any case, navigation is forbidden by night. Whatever was causing the continuous sound of waves must have been fairly large. Two days later, he was up at dawn, standing on a hillside with binoculars in his hand, when he had the first sighting of the monster. Something black and glistening and rounded appeared above the surface, projecting about three feet. Then it dived, producing an upsurge of water like a diving hippopotamus. Through his binoculars he could make out the shape below the surface, thick in the middle and tapering towards its extremities. Holiday guessed it to be between 40 and 45 feet long. Three years later, in 1965, he sighted it on two more occasions. After that first sighting, he felt relatively sure that what he'd been watching was simply a giant version of the common garden slug, an ancestor of the squid and octopus. And in 1968, he produced a book called The Great Orm of Loch Ness, in which the main argument is that the monster is a variety of giant slug, Tollymonstrum gregarium, a creature looking a little like a submarine with a broad tail, and that these monsters were once altogether more plentiful in the United Kingdom, hence the many legends of dragons. He also adds, almost casually, that the dragon seems to be often regarded as a symbol of evil. What struck him as so odd was the apparent camera shyness of the monster. Again and again he heard stories of people who had seen it, but by the time that they raised their camera, or gone to their car to get it, it had vanished. It almost seemed as if the monster was telepathic. Okay folks, lots of great stuff in here, so what, where to start? So the, the, his book is called The Great Orm of Loch Ness. So Orm, I've heard, is a sort of a Scandinavian term for a snake or a worm. And um, we're later on going to hear the word paste when applied to Ireland, which of course in modern Irish literally means a worm, but in, in historical time and across the Christian centuries was a word sometimes applied to the, like dragons and, and the devil, concepts of the devil, concepts of evil, concepts of a snake as portrayed in, in the Bible, that sort of thing. And again, we've got this, already we have this paranormal idea creeping in. Right, so it's not that the, you know, the the lack of good photographs is not is a sign that this monster might not exist. No, it's a sign that the monster knows when you're trying to photograph it. So not only is it real, but it must be psychic. Here we have a bit of paranormal creep coming in. Hi, folks. Editing key in here. This term is probably better known as supernatural creep. As far as I know, the term was first used by Sharon Hill. 
over at Doubtful News. She does a lot of great write-ups on stuff like this, so I'll put a link to her work in the show notes as well. Holiday is amazing. Even before he gets onto the paranormal creep, his ideas about what this animal is are out there. So he's not saying a plesiosaur like everybody else. He's He's got this Tully Monstrum thing. Now let's talk about that. Colin Wilson constantly refers to it as being a type of worm, but, sorry, rather a type of slug. But I don't think that's a fair, um, I don't think that's a fair description of what Tully Monstrum is because Tully Monstrum, sometimes called the Tully Monster, is a, a, an animal known from fossil records, very few fossil records, I think, um, from about 300 million years ago in the US, Illinois. And, well, I'll let you decide for yourself. Listen to the scientific classification for this animal. Its kingdom is Animalia. Okay, cool. It's an animal. Its clade is Bilateria. So all we're committing to here is... You know, it's it's bilateral. It's got two sides that are the same, like most animals lower than that. And then we cut straight to genus, Tully Monstrum. And it's the only known one of its genus, Tully Monstrum gregarium. So we're not even committing as to whether this thing is a, a vertebrate or an invertebrate. We, we know nothing about it, uh, except it is a, extremely strange looking. It, it does look a bit like a, a tube or a submarine with a weird neck coming out of it and a thing that looks like it might be a head at the end, but we're not sure. I mean, there is arguments for this being a, a vertebrate and arguments for it not being a vertebrate. So I've noticed this idea pop up in many Colin Wilson books when he talks about Ted Holliday. Again, they they did seem to be friends. He mentions, oh yeah, it's uh, he thinks it's a kind of slug, but I don't think that that's a, a fair... Um, description of what Tully Monstrum is, although perhaps that is what perhaps that was what they thought it was in the 1960s, I'm not sure. Now, Ted Holliday wrote numerous books, and I would love to get a hold of them, but they're not easy to get a hold of, or they're they're expensive where they are available. So he wrote The Great Orm of Loch Ness, he wrote a book called The The Dragon and the Disc, and he wrote a book, or at least a book was published posthumously after he died, called The Goblin Universe. And I would love to read any of them, but I don't have them. So a lot of my information about his books and ideas is coming from other sources. So to find out what happened next, we're going to turn to a book called World Famous Strange But True. And this is again by Colin Wilson, this time accompanied by Damon Wilson and Rowan Wilson, who I presume are family. And this one is from 1994. So here's what Colin Wilson has to say about the further continuing adventures of Mr. Holiday. Loch Nahuin is a small brown-coloured lake in Connemara on the west coast of Ireland. At 7 o'clock on the evening of 22nd February 1968, Stephen Coyne, a local farmer, was walking along the shores of the loch. He was accompanied by his eight-year-old son and his dog. Stopping beside a heap of peat, Coyne saw a black object in the water and assumed that his dog had gone for a swim. When he whistled, however, the dog came running from the opposite direction and, on seeing the black object, began to bark furiously. The farmer looked more closely and saw that the object was some kind of animal with a long neck and shiny black skin. When it plunged its head under the surface, two humps appeared. The farmer also caught a glimpse of a flat tail. By this time, the barking of the dog had attracted the attention of the monster, it began to swim towards the shore, its mouth open, 
Alarmed for the safety of his dog, the farmer hurried towards the water. At this, the creature turned and made off. The eight-year-old boy ran back to the nearby farm and brought his mother and the four other coin children. The family stood at the edge of the lock, watching the monster until it became too dark to see. Describing it later to an investigator, F.W. Holliday, the coin said the monster was about 12 feet long. It had no eyes, but there were two horns, like those of a snail, on top of its head. So, F.W. Holiday is, of course, Ted Holiday. I do have to wonder if the snail-like uh, horns on top of the head might be sort of Holiday's interpretation of this monster, again, as being some sort of some sort of gastropod or invertebrate, if indeed that is what he believed. So, Wilson goes on to say that so Holiday had written his book already where he makes the case that the Loch Ness Monster was some sort of Tully monster. And uh, be- based on the description of the family, he says, right, this Irish monster is clearly the same sort of thing. So he makes makes it his business to go over and, and, and have a look. Um, but then Colin Wilson points out that since this Loch Nahuin is only 100 yards long, as as compared to Loch Ness, which is, you know, 24 miles long. It it seems, well, it seems A, really, a, a lake monster in here, but B, hey, if there is, you're definitely going to catch one. So uh, he says, accordingly, Holiday's team brought nets, support buoys, and 100 yards of heavy chain to Loch Nahuin. They stretched the nets across the middle of the lake and then rowed around the lake, firing a heavy rifle into the water to force the monster to rush into the nets. Nothing happened except that Holiday developed a severe toothache. After several disappointing days, they abandoned the hunt. Nevertheless, Holiday remained convinced that the monster had been in the lake all the time, and is still there. Well, Wilson and Holiday continued to attach much significance to this toothache. Holiday himself has acknowledged the obvious argument against his idea. Loch Nahuin is full of trout, and if a creature even the size of a crocodile lived there, the fish would all be eaten in a matter of weeks. Perhaps, then, the coin family mistook an otter or a large eel for the monster. Even if that were so in this case, there have been numerous sightings of some unknown species in many of the peaty lakes in the west of Ireland. Holiday gathered further evidence from Georgina Carberry, the librarian of Clifton in Connemara. In 1954, Miss Carvery and three friends drove to nearby Loch Fada, a mile-and-a-half long lake, to fish for trout. They settled down on a tongue of land to have a picnic. Then they saw the monster, which at first they took to be a man swimming. The creature moved towards them in a leisurely manner, and they could see two large humps and a forked tail. They also saw a huge shark-like mouth, although none of them noticed teeth. Miss Carvery described the creature's movements as wormy. Other witnesses who have reported seeing monsters in nearby lakes generally agree on an undulating, worm-like movement. Interesting to note that the the lake Loch Fada, Fada in Irish means long, and it's, it's a mile and a half long. So if that's the long lake around there, it's just, it's, it's a constant thing with these stories that all of the bodies of water in which the animals are supposedly seen are just so small as to sort of beggar belief a little bit. Anyway, what was the significance of Holiday's toothache? Well, Wilson continues. A few months after his visit to Loch Nahuin, Holiday was browsing through a book on Babylonian history by Sir Wallace Budge. Who's Sir Wallace Budge? He was 
the director of, and I think, Egyptian and Assyrian Antiquities at the British Museum at this time. For more on him, check out our episodes on Bram Stoker's Spooky Egypt. The episode is called The Jewel of Seven Stars. He was a very interesting guy. Anyway, Holiday came across a Babylonian creation myth that described how the god Anu had created marshes. According to the ancient text, quote, The marshes created the worm, and the worm said, Let me drink among the teeth, and set me on the gums, that I may devour the blood of the teeth. Holiday recalled the strange and persistent toothache that had begun as soon as he arrived at Loch Nahuin, and which vanished as soon as he left the area. He experienced a sudden absurd suspicion. Could it be that the monster was not a creature of flesh and blood, but some kind of ghost? Uh, liberal, liberal use of italics there, folks, from Mr. Colin Wilson. So, yeah, if, if, if this sounds to you like it's going into John Keel territory, you're absolutely right. Give yourself a no point. If you don't know what that's about, our last episode should set you right all about the Mothman. John Keel, of course, was a an American writer on The Strange and the Paranormal. He would have been active at about this time, but he doesn't become very well known until he writes The Mothman Prophecies in 1975. And he has this sort of idea that all different kinds of seemingly different paranormal phenomena actually are part of the same thing. And, you know, just because something seems like a monster, a physical thing, well, that doesn't mean that it it, it, it might actually just be a spiritual thing and UFOs might not actually be um, you know physical discs they might be some sort of manifestation that's more psychological or 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 you know some some sort of a ghost as, as Wilson says here and then he, he he makes some some comparisons by saying you know hey, well you know when when you see an image on your tv screen that's a kind of ghost it's a specter of something that's happening many miles away and he talks about Carl Jung, of course. That's the fun thing about Wilson. Like <laughs> in his books, he's as likely to 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 just start talking about like Carl Jung as he is to talk about just tell ghost stories. So we've got the idea that saucers and dra- and, and sea monsters and dragons might be projections of some deep unconscious need in mankind. Uh, Jung does not mean that UFOs are mere illusions based on some form of wishful thinking. He means that some deep religious craving in the subconscious mind of the whole race may somehow project the image of UFOs so that they actually appear in the outside world. Holiday had reached the conclusion that UFOs and monsters shared this characteristic of being less solid and real than they look. At least he can claim to have had experiences of both. And he, he elaborates on this in his book The Dragon and the Disc. Real, real John Keel stuff here. High strangeness, window areas, all that sort of thing. He kind of goes on then to say that if you look across ancient cultures, you will constantly find the symbols of the dragon and of the disc, and that generally the dragon symbolizes evil and that the discs uh, symbolize good. So getting into sort of spiritual stuff here, really, and just think how far we've come already from, you know, the hunt for a, a flesh and blood animal. So what happens next chronologically in the history of West Ireland lake monsters? Well, our boy Captain Lionel Leslie, the man from Monaghan, shows up once again. So from a, of all places, a deviant art uh, site or page by Melintra Shadow Moon, we have this little bit to add. They write, in the 60s, 
Captain Lionel Leslie tried to lure the monsters of Connemara in County Galway to appear on the surface. He undertook his first experiment in October 1965 in Loch Fada. Leslie obtained the approval to spring the lake with dynamite. It was his aim to scare the monster with the shock. Ten seconds after the detonation of two kilogram explosives, he saw that a black something appeared. Unfortunately, the lake was so troubled by the explosion that it was difficult to recognise details. But what he saw was enough to convince the people of the existence of a monster in the lake. In October 1967, Leslie planned to fish out Lochfada with a net. His efforts stayed without any success. So, next up I have a site called dickrainer.co.uk who have a, a really wonderful site. It's kind of old-fashioned and bits of it seem to be... It's like an old castle, you know, the way websites were in the old days where uh, things were just placed in strange places, information wasn't always where you'd expect and bits of it seem to be just falling off and disappearing. But there's wonderful stuff here. Uh, it's if you, if you can deal with the sort of late 90s vibe. So Dick Rayner and their website all about mystery animals of Ireland. They have probably the most information about the 1968 and 9 expeditions by these folks. So they write, During the spring of 1968, various members of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau gathered in Clifton for what would become the first of two attempts at capturing an Irish Loch monster. On hand was Dr. Roy P. Mackle, F.W. Holliday, and fellow Bureau member Lionel Leslie. Oh boy, here we here we got some names. So Lionel Leslie, we've met. Holiday, we've met, and he's he's a interesting guy. Roy P. Mackle is is a cryptozoologist of importance, but. Again, I can't. I, I would love to read his books, but I can't get a hold of them for for decent prices. The folks who knew him well tend, to, or the folks who've researched him properly, tend to say he was a guy who had a bit of a midlife crisis. He became attached to the Loch Ness monster phenomena at this time in the sixties, and then he was better known in the eighties for hunting down the supposed Congo dinosaur, the Mukile Mbembe, and. Yeah, not not an amazing guy at, at sorting the wheat from the chaff when it comes to, you know, finding out what's true with these stories. Some of the more extreme stuff that he, I have seen quotes from his own book where he says this, he basically didn't like taking no for an answer. When he went to the Congo and people told him the dinosaur wasn't real, he would like get his pistol out and kind of threaten them until they told him it was real and where to go find it. And, and sort of believed that actually they, they knew they were just withholding this information from him and he just had to, you know, get a little bit tough with them. So a bit of, bit of a compromised character. Anyway, based on the testimonies gathered by Leslie, the Bureau became confident that a species similar, if not identical to, the ones pursued in Loch Ness could be found within the significantly smaller bog lakes of Connemara. Attempting to acquire a specimen in locks a mere fraction the size of, ne of Ness naturally appeared far more pragmatic to the team. So we have a great list of all the stuff they had. They had a, a fish stunner, echo sound technology, mountable cine cameras, a greener harpoon gun, and nets that could cover the whole width of the lake. The lake being quite small, so... Um, Leslie is calling the animals horse eels at this point, 
and believing that they might burrow themselves into the mud where they could lay dormant for considerable amounts of time. Uh, so they, this was one of the reasons why they brought the Jelignite, which is of course an explosive, <laughs> hoping to wake up these animals. But um, of course back in 1965 they had tried st stuff like this with what they considered to be success, so I, th I guess they thought, they thought this was a good thing to try again. Loch Shanakiver had, yeah, Shan had been chosen for its workable size and the relative consistency of sightings. The previous four summers had all yielded reports. However, at the last moment, plans were altered when word came through that a sighting had taken place only months prior in the even smaller Loch Nahuan. In some ways, the lake's lack of size seemed to push limits on the very definition of the word lake, as it was only an estimated 250 yards in length by 150 yards in width. Initially, the dimensions were viewed with both optimism and scepticism. Sensing opportunity at hand, Holiday made the comment, if one's in here, then it's ours. So they had some sort of hopeful moments when a bunch of the boys holding the net up were knocked under the water and kept down. They never found out what had actually done that, but after a little bit of time, even our boy Dr. Mackle starts to become a little more sceptical and he writes, Not even one substantial animal could have more than a transient relation with this little pond, even if one assumed maximum of possible food sources. But I'm sure they all had a lovely time. They were hanging around in these little villages, talking to people, collecting more stories and um, finding out exactly what the local people did believe. Now, the Dick Rayner site, just so we know, is taking its information from Roy Mackle's book, Monsters of Loch Ness, but also from The Dragon and the Disc itself by Holiday, which, given that I can't get a hold of it myself, hopefully would be the next best thing. And that finally takes us up to the 1969 Connemara expedition, which is where we came in. That is the short three and a half minute video that I watched from RTE back in the day. And uh, now we know what has led up to all of this. So the Dick Rayner site writes, One year after the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau's unsuccessful expedition to Ireland, four members returned to the boglands of Connemara for yet another round. This time they planned to take on Loch Shanakiver and Loch Anna, in addition to giving Loch Nahuin another shot. The team was significantly smaller than the one prior, consisting only of Ivor Newby, Lionel Leslie, F.W. Holiday and the secretary Holly Arnold. Efforts were broader, however, as nets were placed simultaneously in all three lakes. Despite previous disappointment, Loch Nguyen seemed to once again flaunt its potential after Lionel Leslie met with a local farmer who'd had a sighting of a strange creature on the shore of the lake only one month prior. However, this time the net wall faced complications. Persistent rains had swollen the lake, creating permissible gaps along the bottom in areas where the net failed to touch. The team was keen on conducting their own survey of the families and residences along the lakes to extract what knowledge or experiences they may have had with horse eels. Holiday wrote that it seemed over half the population either had seen a creature or knew of someone who had. I'm going to return to the UFO book just for a quick check-in with Mr. Holiday a little bit later in his career and to see where is he really going with all of this. So Colin Wilson writes, there is, of course, a certain danger in constructing theories like these, a danger that can be seen very clearly in the work of Eric von Daniken. That's the ancient astronauts guy, if you want to know more about that. We did an episode called Jack London and the Ancient Astronauts, so go check that one out. 
Holiday, fortunately, was not prone to the kind of enthusiasm that destroys all critical balance. Like Jacques Vallée, he was moving towards the view that flying saucers may be symbols. Or perhaps a better word would be signals. That is to say that their purpose may be to remind human beings that reality is altogether stranger and more complex than they think. The question of precisely who is making the signals is left open. But in the twelfth chapter of The Dragon and the Disc, he admits that, quote, By 1970, I had rejected the superficial view of monster phenomena, that they are just unknown animals that have somehow escaped the science net, as inadequate. He goes on to suggest that in the ancient world, the disc may have been worshipped in many places, while the dragon was worshipped by other groups. Such groups today would be called Satanists. He points out that Irish churches seem to lack the serpent design found in so many English churches, and suggests that perhaps th uh, this is what is meant by the legend that St. Patrick banished the serpents from Ireland, that he destroyed the ancient religion of dragon worship. I absolutely love it. That is absolutely brilliant. So, man, I would love to read Holiday's books. I wish they were more affordable, but thank you very much to Colin Wilson for being such good mates with him and getting all this great information for me. Okay, I just want to say a couple of more bits and pieces about this. So, there is a group in Canada, of all places, that are called the BCSCCA. They also have a kind of an old-fashioned website where key sections of it are not functioning. Uh, but I'm going to guess that stands for British Columbia Society, something to do with cryptozoology. And this is what they say about Irish lake monsters many, many years later. They write, In the summer of 2006, a BCSCC field trip took place at Lochs Shanakiver and Anna in Connemara, County Galway. Having read of the efforts of Captain Leslie, James and Mackle, our investigators elected to look at the practicalities of how a classic lake monster could possibly survive in these lakes. We had been apprised of the relatively small size of the locks, which are less than half a mile apart. However, nothing prepared us for just how small the locks were when we arrived. To be generous, these locks are nothing more than glorified ponds, and how it could be conceived that a classic lake monster lived in them is imponderable. Oh dear, that's a fairly uh, that's fairly harsh words there from the BCSCC. They weren't impressed with the size of our lakes and the possibilities of our lake monsters. Well, Ted Holliday died in 1979. He left behind him a book known as The Goblin Universe. It was unpublished. I think he felt himself that by the middle of the 1970s, that all of that exciting new evidence that was coming through, Robert Ryan's research, the sonar, the underwater photographs of the diamond-shaped flipper and all of that sort of thing, all of that had actually started to change his mind. So in his last days, he was not really feeling so confident about publishing his book, The Goblin Universe, because, well, now we have all this evidence that makes the monster look as though it really is a physical, practical creature after all. Well, we don't have time to get into the, the provenance of those particular photographs and what they are now reckoned to be truly of, but I think that, um, I think that the field of paranormal thought lost out when that book uh, wasn't published. Except good old Colin Wilson um, approached his family and said, look, leave it with me, can I publish this? And he sent the money uh, for the book to, 
Holiday's mother. So the book was published in, I think, 1980 or 1981, and it is seriously weird. It takes things in even stranger directions. So in the Goblin universe, uh, Holiday basically decides that Loch Ness is haunted by the spirit of this sort of, you know, ultimate evil represented by a, a dragon or a, a reptile, and therefore he does a, an ec- he performs an exorcism on the surface of the lake in a small boat with a priest, and very shortly after this, he has a literal encounter with an MIB, a man in black. So we are doing some serious John Keel on this here, folks. We are mixing and matching different kinds of paranormal ideas. In the Goblin universe, he writes, after this is after his exorcism, The next morning before breakfast, I decided to step down to the Laura caravan to collect some oddments from my suitcase. It was a beautiful fresh morning and the lawns wet with dew. Uh, as I turned to the corner of the house, I stopped involuntarily. Across the grass, beyond the roadway, and at the top of the slope leading down to Loch Ness, at the top of which the caravan was located, stood a figure. It was a man dressed entirely in black. Unlike other walkers who sometimes pause along here to admire the Loch Ness panorama, this one had his back to the lock and was staring at me fixedly as soon as I turned the corner. Indeed, to all appearances, he was waiting for me. I had a strong sensation of malevolence, cold, and passionless. Vaguely, I remembered black figures from UFO stories. So, that's taken me to the end, folks. I will put all of the sources that I used into the show notes as usual. I really do encourage you to look at the first one, which will be the short video of these guys doing their 1969 expedition to Connemara. Just see what they look like, see what they sound like, and uh, marvel at this this particular strange time in history when such such incredible incredible people came here to Ireland to <laughs> search for living monsters, living dragons, and uh, yeah, listen to Ted Holiday. He at the point the video was taken, he is just on the verge of finally deciding that these monsters are not physical things; they are in fact some sort of deep Jungian manifestation yeah, from within our subconscious. So if that isn't why people believe strange things, I don't know what is. So I'm Kean. This has been Wide Atlantic Weird. Once again, if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do so on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And over on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Send in any weird stories you've had yourself or ideas for episodes. Please leave us a review. We would love that. That really helps. And oh, yes, of course, send one, you know, send the episode to one person who you think might like it. That's the best thing of all that you can do to support the show. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.